Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we are very lucky to have Saifedean Amos. He is a three-time author and the author of the Bitcoin Standard, the most recommended and most uh, and highest-selling Bitcoin book of all time. Saifedean, great to see you, my friend. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Nick. Always fun to be talking to you. So. The Bitcoin standard is several years in the making and has entered Bitcoin folklore as the most popular book people recommend around the world to get people interested in Bitcoin and have them understand what Bitcoin really is. But your latest book, Principles of Economics, I want to talk about that first. Tell us about your third book and why you wrote it and what maybe or some of the main takeaways from the book all right so this is something that i've wanted to do for a very long time since i started teaching at university back in 2009 i started teaching economics and immediately i was uh, a little uh, underwhelmed and disappointed with the uh with the quality of the books that i was uh, uh using at university and I always wanted to just have my own book. I wish I could have my own book so that I could teach it. Well, not necessarily my own book, but you know, a good, a, a good book in the Austrian tradition. And um, because I would teach Austrian economics and I would try and supplement the material as much as I could with Austrian economics, I'd always have to use a vast variety of different sources and it wasn't ideal. So you had a chapter from here and a, a paper from here and an article from there, and it wasn't uh, very ideal. So then I decided, um, I, I planned on one day hopefully writing this book, but um, you know, being an academic is very difficult to publish in academia when you have ideas that are not um, con con concurring with the mainstream. And so I couldn't get anything published for uh, quite a while in academia, and I wasn't really sure how to go about publishing things because I was just getting very negative feedback from academics who just like, no, you can't say that, you can't say this, you can't say that. But then I wrote the Bitcoin standard, you know, Bitcoin came about and I became obsessed with Bitcoin, like everybody who finds Bitcoin eventually. Um, and I was just talking about Bitcoin all the time. And then, um, you know, the, the turning point, as I've said before, um, I was just continuously arguing with people on the internet about Bitcoin. And then my wife once said, you know, you could write a book with all the time you spend writing essays to people on Facebook about Bitcoin. And I just thought, wow, that she's actually correct. So I took a vow to not <laughs> argue with anybody on the internet anymore and spend all of that time in writing a book. And indeed, that gave us the Bitcoin standard. So then I became a published author and my readership continued to grow and like people were quite fond of the Bitcoin standard. And so that gave me the confidence to leave my university job and to go out and do this thing that I've always wanted to do. So I started working on this really in 2018, 2019, right after I published the Bitcoin Standard, and I've been working on it since then. And um, it's, it's, it's what I would have wanted to have at university as a professor, but also as a student uh, when I started economics, because it's all the useful ideas from economics that can prove valuable for you in your daily life. And I think that's very different from the things that we usually learn at uh, university. So um, I wanted to make economics written in a way that is approachable, that is easy, that you could read 
um, you know, uh, read easily and understand it and grasp important concepts that change your life, but also allow you to study it in depth and to get an intro into the topic and um, get into the topic in real depth if you wanted to read it. And I think I struck the right balance in the book in that it's approachable, but also in depth at the same time, I hope at least. Um, it's it's maybe too early to be uh, judging that. Readers will decide. So yeah, so that was uh, the motivation for it. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by River. Make sure to check out river.com today or the link below in the description. River is our preferred place to purchase Bitcoin. Now, when you're buying Bitcoin, guys, there are several considerations. Number one, should I be using an exchange? Is the exchange custodying their own Bitcoin? Is the exchange using platforms to custody that we don't know? Is the exchange leveraging its Bitcoin for other purposes? Well, with River, we know that River does not use leverage of any kind. River also uses its own multi-sig solution so that your Bitcoin are not held by anybody else. So it's a very important thing to understand about what River offers. Now, River also has Lightning Network integration and a lot of other really exciting features. Go check out river.com today. Okay, safe. so talk to us about what are some of the main principles that you wanted people to learn that they might not get from traditional economic study? So... Um, Austrian economics approaches economics from a different perspective from what mainstream economics does, and it approaches it with the analytical unit being uh, human action. So the, the, the way that we think of economics is that economics is a manifestation of human action. So it's not, uh, it, it's not that we're studying um, you know, economic output or money or industrial output or these things. All of these things are manifestations of human beings acting. And that's really the key point. And that might sound like it's, um, you know, pedantic point, like who cares, all right, what, why does it matter? But in fact, I believe it's a far more powerful way of approaching economic analysis when you think about it from this perspective because it allows you to build much more solid conclusions and um, arrive at far more useful insights. So we begin by explaining what is human action from the Austrian perspective, why economics is understood as the study of human action, and then how this thing is valuable for us, and how it's really um, almost a commonsensical thing to do. You know, you, once, you're, once, you, once you understand that human beings um, drive events around them, then understanding the choices that humans make in the context of scarcity can give you a lot of insight about the way that economics works and the way that we make decisions and the way that uh, you would like to be making those decisions. So we begin with this concept of understanding human action. Then we explain how value is subjective, another very big point for Austrian economists, and why we use marginal analysis, which is a very big point. We always think of economic decision-making being done at the margin rather than being done over aggregates in general. And then with that, uh, and then after the, the third chapter looks at time. So we look at the economics of time, why we can think of all of economics as being really about economizing time. And so with that foundation, we're analyzing human action, we're using marginal analysis, we think of value as being subjective, and we're studying the economic problem of time, how people are economizing their time, increasing the quantity and the quality of time that they have on Earth 
These are the first three chapters. This sets the stage for the rest of the book. And then we get into the economic concepts. And the way that I structured the book was to think of the most important economic concepts and the most important economic acts that human beings take and then just dedicate a chapter towards explaining that concept. And so um, these chapters can be read as a standalone essay, so a chapter on capital, a chapter on labor, but also they form part of a narrative wherein we started off by laying the methodological foundation in the first three chapters, as I mentioned, and then the next 15 chapters, they follow a sequence where we go from, first of all, we look at all of the individual things that people do to economize. So people work, people own property, people accumulate capital, people um, trade with one another, people, uh, people um, use energy and power in order to achieve their economic ends. And so I look at each one of those, look at the economics of labor, economics of capital, economics of energy, and how we can understand energy markets, and how we can understand how the economics of energy works. And I understand, and, and, and I try and analyze each one of these on their own. And then the next section looks at economics within a social context wherein how individuals economize in the presence of other individuals, and that means we trade with one another, we develop market systems, we then develop money, and money is then a major point that the book spends some time talking about. And then these things give us the market order. So then we explain the market order from the Austrian perspective, which I think is an enormously important. The, 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 the capitalist market order and how it functions and how it is based on property rights and why it is essential for economic development and why it is not possible to have economic growth, to have economic development, to have economic production, to have modern civilization without free markets. And so if there was one kind of um, big conclusion that I'd like to make from this book is that, you know, I begin from first principles, I begin from the very basic ideas of how people economize and I go, you know, from first a person working to then uh, saving, investing, increasing their productivity, utilizing more energy sources, trading with others, developing a monetary system, and then living in a complex modern market economy, and then looking at what we have today, our quality of life, our standard of living, and the ability to secure our needs that is allowed to us thanks to modern technology and modern civilization, looking at that as being the point that I want to communicate is to try and get the reader to understand that this is not just something that we're born into. It's not just a gift that is given to us from heaven. This is the outcome of the entire intricate process before. When you have property rights, when you have people free to work, when you have people able to accumulate capital, they save. When you have a functioning monetary system, they can trade with one another. Then you develop these highly extensive large divisions of labor, then you're able to develop a very high productivity, and then you're able to have all the nice things that modern civilization allows us to have. And so in order to do all of those things, in order to have all of those things, we need to have the foundations of a capitalist economy. And that's what I try and communicate in the book. And so, um, and that ends the third part of the book. In the fourth part of the book, we look more in depth into monetary economics and how the economics of money works. And then in the fifth part of the book is essentially the culmination of this book and perhaps even the culmination of the previous two books, the Bitcoin and the Fiat Standard, in that it's, um, it's, it's the question that a lot of people have on Austrian economics. All right, so they get sold on the um, economic principles, they get sold on the economic ideas, they get sold on even the monetary things. But then there's 
Well, you know, but you still need government because you still need to build roads. We still need to have police. We still need to have defense. We still need to have security. And so in that final section, I look at the problem of defense and the problem of security, and I look at them as an economic good. And so I present the case for why it's better to understand these things as just market goods like any other market good and why it would be much more productive for us to think of them that way. Okay, so Saif, you get into, toward the end of the book, what should we think about defense and security? These are principles of our society that I think people just assume we need the government for military, we need the government for security. And so how do you approach that concept with your free market capitalistic approach to economics? Where does defense fall in and how should we consider it? Yeah, so I mean, it's a uh, it's 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 a very detailed uh, couple of chapters, three chapters that I'd uh, recommend getting into for the full answer. But the, uh, the the way that I treat this topic is that I look at defense and um, uh, security as economic goods, and I try and analyze them as economic goods. And you see, once you start thinking of them as economic goods, everything begins to make a lot more sense. And the reason for that is. Um, so remember earlier I was saying that with economic analysis, we look at marginal analysis. We don't think of things in the aggregate. And that is the first step toward proper economic thinking. And it is uh, extremely useful in the context of thinking about defense. Because generally when people think of defense or security, they think of it as if it is an aggregate good that the government just provides to people with a flick of a button. So um, we all pay taxes, and so the government can provide us all with security. It can have, provide us with a military that protects us all. It can provide us with police that protect all of us. But in reality, like with all economic goods, everything is provided at the margin. There is a marginal unit of security being added in whatever form it takes, and then there is a marginal beneficiary of this. And so the simplest example to understand is think about the police or, um, you know, what kind of security should you have? So it's, it's, it, it, it's easy to say we need to have a police to keep people secure. But in reality, what level of security are you going to have as an individual? So would you get a policeman for every neighborhood or do you get a policeman for every street or do you get a policeman for every house or do you get a 24-hour security detail around every individual? These are economic questions, and at the margin, people need to make those decisions. And there's no simple answer that you can answer in the aggregate. You know, let's give everybody a security detail. The government can't just do something like that because obviously it's insanely expensive. So then how does uh, a market allocate those things? Well, the way that markets allocate this is through people making their own decisions. In a market, you decide what risk you're willing to take, what level of security you want, and then you pay for it. And that's in reality, if you understand, if you think about the market for defense like that, you realize, first of all, it is just another economic good. And in reality, actually, the vast majority of the market for defense and security is already a private market. So yes, uh, governments have military and have police, but I think it's fair to argue these are more interested in securing the government itself than they are securing the people. And I think we have plenty of examples that show this. And um, in reality, if you want security, you have to buy it on the market yourself. You buy your own gun, you buy your alarm system, you buy locks for your homes, 
You hire private security contractors. In fact, you know, there isn't a single bank, perhaps, or a jewelry store that relies entirely on the police for their security. They have their own private security companies all over the world. And in fact, there already are more private security guards than there are policemen all over the world, and significantly more. So more and more people rely on private security because that is the market at work. You are able to buy the level of security that you want for whatever you, you need. And that makes sense because there's no other rational way of allocating it. Because, you know, remember as I was describing the capitalist system, the only way that a capitalist system works is through private property. When people own their property, they're able to perform economic calculation on their resources. And they're able to decide what they want to do with those resources. When you take away people's private property there is no possibility for economic calculation. And so you end up with massive waste, which is what we see in security services that are managed by governments in general, that they are ineffective and that they're not subject to the test of the market. And so if you think of security and defense as a market you and as economic goods, I think it's much more um, powerful as a way of analysis. And it's very useful for understanding how society really functions. And that, you know, the way that we get nice things is not because we have a government that just um, clicks a button and gives us security. It's because we work hard. We produce things. We have to have an economic system that allows people to have security of property rights, to work, produce, and accumulate capital. And that's what allows us to build civilization. And that's the final chapter of the book. It analyzes civilization and why um, capitalism is essential for it, what are the chances for us to continue to keep this nice thing called civilization going, and what are the chances that we um, derail the whole thing. And this next question is just for the viewers. Let's go blank slate. Let's maybe toss out our preconceived notions. Are there countries right now in the world that are exercising the principles that you advocate for, either in part or for the most part? And in which countries are there economic systems today that represent the principles that you discuss? It's a difficult question to answer um, with uh, one kind of one word, naming a country, because I think it's a matter of uh, shades of gray all over. And so, in a sense, it's almost like you're telling me, um, if I'm trying to tell you that you know theft is bad, and you're telling me, well, can you name one country that has zero thieves? Uh, and you know, uh, probably there aren't. And theft happens pretty much everywhere, uh, but that does not constitute an argument for theft. And so, what I what I would say is, if you look at everything um, that's good that's going on in the world. It comes about because of the ability of people to cooperate and work and, and trade with one another freely. And so uh, think about the simplest economic goods that you buy. You know, Think about the microphone that you're using or the pencil or the pen. Think about how many millions of people are involved in the industries and in the factories and in the supply chain that made this thing possible. You know, The thousands of people involved in the mining of iron and copper and zinc and then the engineers in the factory who put those things together into making your microphone 
and then the people distributing and the, the supplying it all over the world and selling it and and so on, and then the advertisements. So it's an enormous network of many, many, many people collaborating and cooperating with one another in order to produce those goods that make uh, that be become available uh, for you. And any time you see that, any time you see that example of anything being done, it is being done because people are voluntarily collaborating and cooperating with one another because of a, they're accumulating capital and they're being able to trade. And that's why we produce all of the nice things that we have. And I think the, you know, um, the, the important question here is what would happen if we didn't have that? Try and uh, imagine what life would look like in any country in the world if it didn't have access to the global distribution of uh, the, the global division of labor. So you, that's a very easy question to answer. You know, just uh, walk out of your house to the, um, go to the go to the wilderness somewhere and try and survive for a month without um, engaging in any capitalism, without trading with any other capitalists, and see how far you get. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to pull off. Uh, your own productivity as an individual is very, very low compared to your productivity in this giant division of labor. If you're able to specialize in doing one thing, you accumulate the capital, you increase your productivity in that one thing, and then you sell it to everybody else, and then everybody else uh, trades that thing, uh, buys that thing from you, and then you can buy everything else that you want. You have a much, 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 much higher productivity. So... Um, what I would say is all over the world, we see this. We see it on the internet. We see it in everything that works. We see people um, engaging in capitalist production. But all over the world, we see people also violating this. We see people engaging in violence. We see people taking each other's property. We see people engaging in um, unprovoked aggression. And um, it's, uh, you know, I don't need to provide an, uh, a pure case of this in order for me to make the case for it. I think the, the hypothetical case is just try and live without it. But if I were to try and think of places where this is happening, I think, you know, my favorite example traditionally has always been Switzerland, which is, uh, you know, maybe the most libertarian country historically. They were on a gold standard, and they had a very, very, very inconsequential tiny little government that doesn't do much. So... Um, the, the key thing about Switzerland is that the central government had very, very little power. Its uh, power has devolved into local level. And so at the local level, you know, governments have very little ability to do very nasty things. Property rights are sacrosanct. And so that was the richest country in the world for a very long time. And, you know, you see this pattern repeat all over the world. You compare South Korea to North Korea, East Germany to West Germany. Um, when you have a market economy, when you have security of property rights, quality of life improves drastically. And the, um, you know, the metric that uh, Mises uses to distinguish between a society that is a capitalist economy. So th there are three types of economics, according to Mises, economies, according to Mises. There's a primitive economy, pre-capitalist economy, which is a, an, any economy where you have not developed a stock market yet. If you don't have a stock market, then you're not a capitalist economy. Once you've developed a stock market, you've truly become a capitalist economy because you have an actual market in capital goods, as capital goods. People are buying productive shares of companies that own large amounts of capital. And the ownership of that capital is no longer con is not controlled by any um, government. It's open out in the market. People can buy it and sell it. And then the third kind of an economy is one that has gotten rid of its uh, um, stock market and replaced it with the central planning board. So 
uh, pre-capitalist economy, capitalist economy, or socialist economy. And you can tell the difference basically by the existence of a stock market. It's fascinating. And on the topic of stocks, how do you view the stock market asset class today in terms of, I guess, in a, in a relative way to Bitcoin and government bonds? So maybe you can use this as an opportunity to compare government bonds to ownership in companies representing the stock market and ultimately compare both of those to Bitcoin. Yeah, I think um, my kind of uh, big picture answer to this is that I think stocks um, make sense as a financial instrument. I remain unconvinced that bonds uh, make sense as a financial instrument, as I'm sure you've heard me say before. I think uh, you know. The, the, I think the the reason that people use uh, bonds and, and that bonds are so important right now is because of the way that the fiat system is structured, as I discussed in the fiat system, in the fiat standard, in my book, the fiat standard. Um, the way that the fiat system is structured is that any time new credit is created new money is effectively created as well. So there's a very strong incentive for people to borrow and lend because every time you borrow and lend, if you're a central bank regulated institution, if you make a loan, you're making new money. So you have a very strong incentive for making new loans. And so this is a very strong incentive for people to engage in credit um, creation. And that is why people need to get into so many of these financial instruments. On the one hand, uh, that this is what this is the kind of um, the um, demand driven uh, the, the the demand driver for lending. On the other hand, uh, because of the destruction of the value of money, because the value because fiat money is constantly losing its value, people can't just hold the money. So they need to be making a yield in order to beat the inflation. And so that means that they are highly likely to go for something that offers them a yield. And I think that, you know, the, the way that the yield comes along is through the devaluation of the currency itself. So I don't think you can beat the currency um, devaluation in the long run with the yield because the whole point of devaluing the currency is, you know, to take value from you. So they're not just going to give it back to you. So I don't think it um, – I, th I think in a free market with a better money, I – don't see the bond market surviving. This is maybe one of my most controversial opinions. I think Bitcoin is here to eat the bond market. So I think in a world in which we have a hard money like Bitcoin, which we can move around, and in a world in which you know uh, banks that can move money around don't have the ability to essentially create money by creating credit because we live in a world of hard money with no central bank that can bail them out when they create credit. I think in that world... Money itself is a hard asset that would be appreciating, so you don't need yield, and you just hold on to the money itself. And then um, if you want to increase the amount of money that you have, I don't think you could get fixed yield. I don't believe that you can have fixed yield because I believe life is uncertain, and there's a fundamental uncertainty in life, and there's always the possibility of uh, catastrophic complete loss. So I don't think this idea, this is a sustainable business model in a hard money world, that you'd have a business model that says, give me your money and I'll give you 6% next year. Um, I don't think that works. I think if you're going to give somebody your money, that person can't make a claim like, I'll guarantee you your money back plus 6% because there's nothing that guarantees it. So the only way that you can um, really 
have a um, have a way to increase your money is to just get equity. So I think in a world of hard money, I think we're going to shift a lot more from debt to equity in the way that people um, hold assets. So you hold cash and your cash appreciates every year. And, you know, primarily, you know, most people don't buy bonds to make money or the vast majority of people don't buy bonds to make money. That's basically as preservation. You take risks with your with the stock part of your portfolio. So for most people, I think they'll just hold a hard money. And then if you want to take risk, once you've accumulated enough of the cash balances that you have, um, that you can afford to take on some risk, then I believe you would get equity. I think people would invest in their own businesses um, or invest in somebody else's businesses by buying equity. So I think, you know, I, th I think um, my view is uh, more favorable toward stocks. I, I, I can see the value, obviously, in stocks, and I can see, uh, you know, having read Mises about it, I can see the importance of it. If you live in a society in which you have ownership of capital, being so specialized and to have such a developed market where you can buy a tiny share of a giant company and have such uh, great market price discovery, I think that's, that that's really um, one of the things to really admire in the development of a um, capital market. But having said that, of course, I still think that you know currently stocks as well are massively overvalued because people need a store of value and they use their stocks as a store of value. So people buy indices and they just buy stocks and arguably they are overpriced um, historically just because people need to buy it. But then again, overpriced compared to what? But well, you know, when the currency itself is being devalued, so maybe they are fairly priced um, given that currency. I just, I mean, not necessarily overpriced, I mean over allocated. Many people are into stocks when they really shouldn't be. The vast majority of people that are buying stocks have no business speculating on whether Amazon is going to uh, go up or down from here or Apple or whatever it is, but they just do it because there's no other alternative to it. So I think we'd, we'd get probably a lot less of a uh, crazy stock market and it'll be a lot more of a, a slow-moving, methodical place where people park their money for the long term based on studying clear investment cases. The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Now, we all have talked about the dangers of letting your coins stay on an exchange. The importance of withdrawing your Bitcoin to self-custody is really part of understanding what Bitcoin is all about in the first place. Bitcoin is about avoiding centralized financial institutions. And with Foundation Devices, we are showing you guys an amazing device. It's called the Passport. And with the Passport, you can get your coins off of exchanges into custody with this beautiful, easy to use device. They also have an onboarding service that will help you get settled with your device, get comfortable with it. Get to understand what it is like to actually take custody of your Bitcoin. So check out foundationdevices.com today and make sure to pick up a passport and use the promo code BitcoinLayer for $10 off your device. I think that what you're discussing, SAFE, is so important for people to understand. Uh, SAFE and Dean and I cover different topics, right? He comes at things from, a, an, uh, from an economics perspective and I come from a more capital markets perspective. So we have different approaches. 
And we also have different, let's say, time horizons in terms of our research on government bonds, right? You guys know that the Bitcoin layer, we cover treasuries, we cover the yield curve, we cover Fed policy. So we're looking at movements of interest rates on daily, weekly, monthly basis. But at the same time, we are completely in alignment on this theory of equity versus the credit money system that we rely upon today or that the world relies upon. And that and distinguishing between what equity means and we and Safe and I you and I actually agree on the idea that equity is a fixture and should have a place in people's portfolio while at the same time that fixture can be enormously overvalued which it might be today and that we prescribe the overvaluation to the idea that people don't have an alternative to escape the credit system other than to allocate to equity so there's so many important things that you covered there and we we really are in alignment on a lot of them especially with this theoretical approach to why equity is a important b being allocated to in a very large way by people to avoid the credit money system c can be overvalued today but you can even justify that overvaluation given point b that we just discussed so really thank you for that yeah. and I, I i hope that i hope that viewers understand uh, some of these nuances yeah i mean ultimately um you know given the fact that we might be witnessing a lot of inflation in the future um, this overvaluation of equities seems to make a lot of sense. You know, if you think about um, the, the iPhone might be 10,000 bucks in a few years, then um, all of this, maybe Apple is still undervalued. Absolutely. And now let's talk about government bonds and specifically the idea of debt monetization by central banks and historical precedent for that. Now, Following the Fed's quantitative quantitative easing programs throughout the 2010s, we can we can see that there was a direct monetization in that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet grew with the net issuance of treasuries by the U.S. government, and so in that way we can see an implicit monetization, even if they're not calling it an explicit one. So what are your thoughts on debt monetization? We got the latest numbers from the Treasury. They are going to, listen, we know that they were going to hit multi-trillion deficits forever, but now they're just being a little bit more clear in the numbers over the next couple of years what we're going to see on those terms. Are we in for more debt monetization, meaning that the Fed is going to come in and buy all these Treasuries? Or... Does the Fed not buy them and the interest rate just goes up as the price goes down and we need to f figure out who's going to get allocated here? Or does the whole thing explode? You know, I want to hear what you think about specifically with regard to the U.S. debt going from $30 trillion as it is today to $40 trillion and $50 trillion as it will over the next decade or two. I'll, I'll, I'll be very honest with you, Nick. I just... Uh... <laughs> 
it's it's very difficult to form strong opinions about this it's a it's uh it's not something that happens every day so we don't have a lot of experiments with you know global reserve currency uh country going uh full on venezuela <laughs> and seeing what happens so it's it, it it's 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 very difficult for me to be able to tell and i think um the for me the the appeal of bitcoin ultimately is that i don't have to tell like i just focus on writing my books i focus on teaching my own courses online i focus on doing my job and i just save in bitcoin and i i think one of the most liberating things is to just not have any kind of um, reason to have any position on what happens in fiat markets because it's uh, it's extremely extremely opaque it's it's extremely difficult and there's just so many factors out there that you need to combine to be able to, to predict what's going to go on most complicated of which of course is that the vast majority of these factors are being driven by um individual decision makers so you not only need to know everything you need to also put yourself in somebody's shoes and make the decisions that they would make which you know uh, is is very difficult thing to do because they're a human being and who knows what kind of factors go into their decision making so on the one hand you know there is this idea that well you know the, the the things are bad in the US but they're much worse everywhere else and capital is going to always continue to flow back to the treasuries and this was kind of the um you know the the the, the safety valve of the whole system is that as you know credit expansion expands capital outward and then when capital collapses uh, people go run for safety they go back to the treasuries which strengthens the US government and effectively allows it to start uh, pumping up the uh, credit uh, market again and so there was this always this kind of re periodic reset that happens and perhaps we're still going to get that I don't know but uh, the last year and a half I think have probably dented people should have dented people's confidence in that happening because at a time when people would have thought you know this is crisis time post-covid inflation um bonds would be the safe haven maybe bonds would go down a little bit but the extent to which they had gone down is huge so that could get people to get so excited to start saying you know this is the end and this is it um the final innings but that you know we've called the end of this uh many many times before it's been going along for 50 years so um i honestly don't know i i really don't know i think it's uh i i, I don't know what the fed is going to do because like are they just going to continue to sacrifice the bonds are they going to um put up with inflation it's a very political decision it's very difficult and um i think the uh my inability to form strong opinions about this is drawn from the fact that i don't have to have strong opinions about it because i'm in bitcoin and um, my Bitcoin thesis is that Bitcoin is really marching to its own tune and that it's primarily not affected by those things. So I don't follow uh, fiat markets very closely because I don't have to. And I think if I did have to, you know, I'd arrive at a conclusion and then I'd have I'd allocate according to it and then I'd become extremely invested in it and then I'd have very strong opinions about it. But I think um and i think you know the last few years have humbled a lot of people most people would say that 
you know, their degree of confidence in the system, in their ability to understand what the system is going to do next, it's probably gone down a lot. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's, there's no shame in that. I don't think it's, uh, it's easy for anybody to say that they could have predicted this, um, how things have panned out. Uh, you know, all the, the, the many layers of unpredictability uh, make this a very difficult call. But uh, what, is, what, is, what is your latest call? I'm curious now. Yeah, you, you know, leaning? it's it, you make a great point about being a prediction engine, and I think that that's something we have to be cautious of at the Bitcoin layer. Is with research and analysis, it can be easy to th to say, and we do, we believe that this will happen, or it is our opinion that this will happen. But in the end, just like you don't have to make those allocation decisions. We are not a hedge fund. We're not a trading service. And in that way, it does allow us to just cover it, analyze it, and just witness the changes as they come instead of trying to make explicit predictions and then be invested in seeing those come true or not. Uh, but to answer your question, we are in a very tough place for the Fed in that they've raised rates so high they're committed to saving face, meaning that they don't want to cut again anytime soon because that keeps their reputation going. What they've done is they've reestablished their reputation as the non-money printer. That's what they're trying to get to. They had a blip in March, but they still are trying to unwind their balance sheet position and they're trying to keep rates as high as they can for as long as they can. And my just general... Uh, outlook is that it's dangerous for the economy all these treasuries as well coming to the supply is dangerous for other asset classes as higher yields just make savings more attractive you talked about how if you offer six percent there's no guarantee that the six percent will outpace inflation but at five percent yield you are going to outpace any inflation a lot better than you were at 2% yield and at 0% yield. And so those higher yields just attract savers. It also has the potential to strengthen the dollar. And strengthening the dollar is a tighter global financial condition for the rest of the world. So my outlook is uh, negative on the global economy and the U.S. economy given where rates are, where they will be held, and the treasury supply that should be crowding out other asset classes and just attract savings. So that's my general feeling. And then will the Fed come in and do enormous QE infinity yield curve control over the next few years as the debt gets out of hand and as we get into recession? The only answer safe is that I don't know. I mean, you can't know how they're going to operate and I can't just come out and say yes, I believe that we're in for QE infinity starting in two years or three years or four years. It's it's just impossible to know. Our hunch is that they can't reduce spending at the government level and that mathematically that should result in the Fed monetizing the debt because where else will the money come from? That's the hunch and that is part of the Bitcoin thesis itself and so that's what we're operating under. But to predict, you know, I asked you and you said, I don't know. Yeah. You're asking me. I'm also saying, I don't know. To know whether they're going <laughs> to yeah. do QE infinity in three years 
on another four trillion or ten trillion in deficit, how do we know? You know, and they yeah. uh, they do respond to the stock market. That's one of the principles that we have in our capital markets approach. The Fed responds to the the S and P five hundred, and so if stocks are crashing. You can guess what they're going to do, and if they're not higher for longer, and that's kind of where we are. So that's how I'm thinking about it. But don't you think the CPI coming down has um, gotten them closer to reversing course, or you still think they want to keep riding that? That's what I, that's what we've been saying is that with CPI coming from nine to three percent, it should get them to pause and let the market digest. The fact that they've done these little rate increases since March and haven't just held it there, I believe is a mistake. And they, they are surprising me each time they do one of these extra. But being close to cuts, it's just not going to happen without stocks in a bear market. Stocks in a bull market, they won't cut. It just they're, they're too sensitive to the stock market. And the only way that they get into easing mode and dovish mode is crashing stocks because they the phone starts ringing. Hey, my portfolio is going down. You need to do something. So that that's basically what we're expecting. Without a stock crash, there's no reversal in policy. We do think they should pause and let things uh, play out because five and a half percent rates should be slowing down economic yeah. activity, and it and it is on a lot of fronts. Even the forward expectations on inflation are much lower than they are today, so market-wise. And so, um, you know, that's how we're thinking about things. Yeah, Safe. I mean, it's... I want to um... ask you on trade. This, this would be my last question for mm -hmm. the day. Trade is one of the principles that you discuss in your book. And trade brings... You, re you refer to it as human flourishing or the advancement of our society when we can trade with each other. What about trade and in the absence of trade, war? And so what do trade and peace have to do with each other or trade and war? And are these things related? Stepping back from your historical perspective of reading, you know, countless centuries of history. Yeah, I think there's a great uh, quote by uh, someone called Otto Mallory who says, uh, if goods don't cross borders, bombs will. I think it's a very, very powerful uh, message. And I think it's very true all the way from the individual level up to the um, you know global superpower level. Um, when I, um, in, in the chapter on trade, uh, and in most economics textbooks use the same example which I use, which is Robinson Crusoe on an island, and then um, he comes across another guy on an island. Uh, he, he thought he was alone on the island, now there's another person. And now you have a choice. Well, there's another human being. You have a choice. What do you do? So there are two broad approaches of how you could approach this other human being. You could choose to cooperate with them, or you could choose to have conflict with them. So you could try and kill them, take their stuff, uh, try and enslave him, make him work for you for free. Or you could try and cooperate with them, wherein you don't take his stuff, you don't uh, damage him or hurt him in any way, and you just uh, only do things that you both agree to. And those are the two approaches. And I think um, you know the, the, the argument that I make is, um, so you found this other guy, you can take their stuff, but 
if you hadn't killed them, if you'd actually cooperated with them, then the amount of benefit that would accrue to you from cooperating with them over the long term is going to vastly dwarf whatever you take from them. So just think about it. You know, you found a guy on an island. What does he have? Has got some, you know, whatever it is that he's got is nothing compared to what he could have if you and him were to cooperate and trade with one another and specialize. So, you know, he focuses on catching fish, you focus on catching rabbits. Now you've got a lot of fish and rabbits, and then you can start focusing on building houses and doing other things. And you could both make your lives a lot better if you cooperate with one another because you specialize, because you can accumulate capital. And you can apply that from uh, the level of two individuals to the level of eight billion people. So you are much better off being able to trade with all the rest of the world rather than if you, are li if you were living in a system where you just try to depend on yourself or on 100 people or 1,000 people or a million people. You're better off being part of a market of eight billion people, which is where we are, because everything that you buy is being produced by somebody who at every step of, the, of this process is able to secure the cheapest inputs from all over the world and then is able to sell it to as many people all over the world so that gives you the best product possible at the lowest price possible. So you want to be part of the largest market. But the only way to do that is to deal with people in a, a peaceful way, is to deal with people in a way that doesn't violate uh, their rights doesn't violate their body, doesn't violate their property. And that's what it comes down to. So the price that we pay for having all of those nice things that we call civilization is that we need to shut down our base animalistic instinct, which is, oh, this guy's a stranger, I don't know him, let me just kill him, and then problem is removed. Um, but there is a reason to shut that down, even though you might think, you know, why should I uh, accommodate civilized society? Why should I care about other people? I can be strong and I just kill anybody who bothers me. Perhaps you could do that. But I think the, the, the point that I make in the book is that, you know, we as human beings, we did not rule other species by being stronger. There are a lot of animals that are stronger than us, that are more powerful, bigger than us. But we ruled them because we are the smartest. And specifically, what allows them to rule, what allows us to rule them or to control them or to protect ourselves from them is the fact that we have this thing called civilization you know so the lion has its claws and its uh its its canines um each animal has its own weapons that it uses the the bull has its horns um but we as human beings we have civilization we have civilization that's what allows us to have a 10-year-old girl can carry a gun and shoot the most vicious animal in the world and render it dead because she's part of that civilization. She has that superpower where she can, you know, for uh, 10 hours of her dad's work, he can work for 10 hours, he can buy her a gun. And with that gun, she can kill the most powerful man or the most powerful monster in the world. So, therefore, if you think that you want to be strong, you're never going to be strong like uh, anybody who is part of the uh, division of labor. You might kill one person, you might kill two people, but the people who are part of civilization can build guns. You can't build guns on your own. And so all of the violent people that say they don't believe in capitalism, they use guns that are produced in capitalist systems. So all the world's guns are produced by capitalists who own factories, who put up capital, who trade all over the world, who buy the supplies that they need to make those guns from all over the world. It's a capitalist production system, and it only functions through 
consent. It only functions through people cooperating with one another and trading with one another. So um, I think the 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 um, the reality is trade is a very, very, very powerful force. And so if you want to be optimistic, you can be optimistic about the fact that uh, even though there are a lot of very powerful enemies for capitalism, they make themselves weak by fighting against capitalism because they destroy the most powerful weapon that they could have. If you don't believe in capitalism, you you know, even if you think even if you think you want to be a hypocrite about it, where I want to destroy capitalism for others, but you know, I'm still going to buy the guns that I need in order to terrorize other people. Well, if you terrorize other people, you tear apart the fabric of the capitalist economy around you, your guns aren't going to work. So the best way for you to be as powerful as possible is for you to go out there and peacefully engage with other people, trade with other people, and try and secure as many resources as you can. And that's kind of, um, that and Bitcoin is what is, allows me to end the book on a positive note, which is there are a lot of reasons why things could go bad, but ultimately human ingenuity and capitalism always find a way. And they always find a way because they are essentially cheating by giving people who use them the most powerful weapon with which to defeat our enemies. So that's why I'm optimistic in the long run. Bitcoin gives optimism a chance to shine through. I completely agree. Seyfedin Amus, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Please plug your books where people can find you. And always so appreciative of your support of Layered Bunny. Uh, Layered Money wouldn't have had its following without the thirst for Bitcoin books, which was uh, in large part started with the Bitcoin standard. So thank you as always, Safe, And yeah, let us know where we can find you online. Thanks so much, Nick. Um, I'm on my website, safedean.com, where I'm going to start teaching a course based on this book, Principles of Economics, which is going to start in the end of September. You can start signing up uh, for membership now. And I'm also um, on Twitter, um, safedean. You can also find my book on my website, all my books. You can buy them directly from my website or from Amazon or from most uh, booksellers. And uh, yeah, and also my podcast, the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Check that one out on YouTube and everywhere that podcasts are uh, cast. Thanks for joining us, Safe, and we'll catch you next time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nick. Take care. Special thanks to River for sponsoring this channel. Purchase Bitcoin without any fees when you use River's DCA feature. River has become our trusted source of accessing the Bitcoin market because they don't use any third-party custodians. This is a very, very important thing to understand. River is not using another company to store the Bitcoin for them. They have their own multi-signature solutions, which means that they have designed their own way to make sure nobody else has responsibility for the Bitcoin for the time that you have River hold your Bitcoin for you on their platform once you have purchased it. So go check out river.com today. Thanks for sticking with us as always at the Bitcoin layer. Subscribe to our channel. Subscribe to our Substack at the so that you can follow along our latest research and analysis. Mm -hmm.